The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who by the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, grant that your servant Porter, being raised with him, may know the strength of his presence and rejoice in his eternal glory, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, for the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Isaac Porter Leach Jr. Um, he eventually moved his middle name forward. The Isaac became an initial. And I don't know when that happened, but um, he's always been known as Porter I. Leach. But he was a junior. He was born a junior. He was born January 7, 1915, at home, probably in his parents' bed. The weather that day, I checked and they actually had that information, it was minus 16 to 34 degrees. There was, it's, I couldn't figure out whether it was five inches of snow or five feet of snow, but anyway, it was five something. He was born in Laredo, Missouri, population 100, give or take 95 people. Um, Laredo's one claim to fame is that it was where Clyde Tolson was uh, born and raised, and he was the lover of um, J. Edgar Hoover. And I, th I just, a little, a little FYI, in case anybody's interested. Um, the world that my father was born into, it was very different, and I'm saying this to his grandchildren, very different than the world that you see now. There was no running water in the house. There wasn't even anything as elegant as a hand pump. It, they had to go out to the well and bring water in. There was no electricity, just kerosene, and of course, Indoor plumbing had not was not a thing for another 20 years. Um, the um, <clears throat> there were no airplanes, no cars. Wherever they went, it was horse and buggy. And during the winter, it was a sled and a horse or a couple of horses. Um, he would. He, I remember him telling how everybody uh, was around the big kitchen table and all the kids did their homework there. He was born the fifth of eight children. The first was Forestine, who died when she was two. There was Virginia, Mildred, Carmel, our father, Howard, Marjorie, and Martha. And actually three of them, who are all in their 90s, are still alive. <laughs> 
So, my father would have been, in 14 months, my father would have been 100 years old. He, they were on the farm um, until he was about eight years old, and there's two versions of this. There's my version, and then there's Marjorie, my cousin's virgin. My version, virgin was, is that farmhouse was burned down because our by the railroad people. This is what I was told by our father. Um, because my um, grandfather was a real rabble rouser. And uh, Marjorie says, oh no, it was hit by lightning, please. But anyway, the house burned down and they had to go to Topeka, Kansas. And they were there until um, dad was 13 years old. And his father managed the Wonder Bread factory, which also burned down. I think there was a bit of a firebug somewhere in the, in the world. But anyway, um, at, when he was 13 years old, my grandfather had had enough of the cold winters, and he said, right out of the blue, I have traded our house in Topeka for a house in Acreage in Banning, California, load up the car. So everybody went, with the exception of Virginia and Mildred, they all loaded into this car and drove from Topeka, Kansas, this is in 1928, from Topeka, Kansas to Banning, California, which was at that point big orchards. Um, they had at least a minimum of three blowouts, tire blowouts a day, and one day I think it was six or something, I think they went 10 miles and had a blowout. They had to fix, they had, there were no tires of course around, so they had to fix them themselves with a little kit they had. And uh, they arrived in Banning with the water boiling over and uh, bald tires, and they arrived on the property. Oh, by the way, my Uncle Howard, who's a lunatic, wore a fur coat. This was July across the Mojave Desert because they said that was what the Arabs did. So I love that. Uncle Howard. He is such a kick in the pants. But anyway, um, God. So um, they arrived. My my um, grandfather had promised my grandmother she had never set like 10 miles out of town. This is to her. This was like going to Mars. He said, "There's no problem. There's a house. You're going to love it." And of course, they got to the property. No house. Just acreage. So the first thing they had to do uh, is my grandfather, my father, and Aunt Carmel had to put together a housing structure. And they did. And they did it before winter because any, anybody who's been in the high desert knows that the winters can be minus 15 degrees. It's very cold. But they were able to get the structure up. And this is how they got rooted in, um, in uh, Banning. From there, he went to high school at Banning High School. He went to um, Riverside Junior College. He went to UCLA in 19, I think it was 35 or 4. Um, he started his, uh, and I asked him, I said, were there any buildings at UCLA? He said, oh, there are a couple. And uh, I mean, it, it had just moved out from um, their, their Los Angeles location. It used to be called um, used, it used to be called University of California Southern Campus, and it very quickly changed to UCLA. Then he met my mother. It was love from the day they met until the day she passed away. They met in November. They married that April. The war started. My dad um, didn't go off to war, but he, he went to train 
all the flyers that were going to be going overseas. He did all the physical training. And um, he and they got through the depression. <clears throat> and um, and then we cut to when we'll cut to the chase when my mother had her strokes. And I think if anything could prove the character of my father, he never skipped a beat. He just went forward. He took such loving care of her until the day she passed away. And it was heroic to watch. And we put this on, and I think this is really apropos. He has kept the faith. Oh, I'm sorry. He has fought the good fight. He has finished the course. He has kept the faith. And that was my dad. He was our hero. What I wanted to talk about was my father, our father's sense of humor. Just a couple of vignettes. Um, one time I heard about it when I was um, much older, and it really surprised me because Dad was always very dignified. He was always a very dignified man, dapper, very quiet, mild-mannered. I have only seen him get angry like once or twice. And then I heard this story about how he and his very good friend, who lived right next door. They were building a fence, and Carlisle was on one side, and Dad was on the other. And here they are painting the fence, and when they get to the end of the fence, they just keep painting each other. <laughs> arms and chest, never saying a word, never laughing, having a straight face, doing it very dignified, all the way up to, I think, the head, you know, doing that. And, uh, and then another story was, Dad was always such a good dresser, except at home when he was taking care of household things, and it was one plaid and then stripes, and it was always an embarrassment to his three daughters and to, to my mom. And one day, we weren't paying any attention, and Dad escaped to the hardware store, and he's standing in line. He told us this afterwards. He's standing in line, and he had his electrical stuff, and he looked over. And there was Walter Matthau standing right next to him in the exact same type of outfit. <laughs> and my dad looked at him and said, uh, no, Walter Matthau looked at dad and he said, what happened? He said, my wife wasn't looking. And my dad said, well, what happened? And the Walter Matthau way said, my wife went to visit her mother. So, and... Um, and then one of these, uh, another story talking about UCLA. Excuse me, I, I miss him. One day we were at the house and we were talking about his life. And he was saying that he was part of a, when he went to UCLA, he went to live at a boarding house. At the boarding house, the guys there had their own fraternity, which actually then turned out to be later on this fraternity went on for a really long time. It wasn't one of these um, certified fraternities, but they called themselves Signify Nothing. <laughs> so, and, uh, and, and he he was such a good friend that he kept these friends until they all passed. You know, he's the, he was the last one of, of all of his friends. So anyway, sorry, uh, I digress. Mm -hmm. 
So, oh, I know. What I was going to say is that, so he's describing this to us, and he's sitting in the chair, and then he gets up, and then he's, he transforms himself into this young fraternity freshman, a little exaggerated, but he stood there with his hand in his pocket, and he went like this, and he, and he transformed from Porter I. Leach to this young fraternity guy, and it was wonderful to watch. It was wonderful to see him transform himself into that. My last story was something that we still have in the family that we laugh about, and that's the connection between Porter I. Leach and Cary Grant. This was something that started when I was like two or three. Dad was an extremely good-looking man, and he and there was a striking resemblance to Cary Grant. Well, Cary Grant's real name was Archibald Leach, and so the, this rumor started a really long time ago, as I said, and Dad never denied it. <laughs> But he never said, you know, he never denied it, but he never said yes. And one time, um, our Uncle Howard was um, stationed up in Alaska. Well, at the same time, Cary Grant was doing a movie in Alaska. And all these, Dad was telling us this later, and all this group of teenagers came up, and he didn't know, Dad didn't know that, uh, Cary Grant was in Alaska, and they all came up to him, and they said, Mr. Leach, Mr. Leach, where's your, where's your brother right now? He turned around, and he said, Alaska. And they all, ah! and then they all ran away. And then when we got home, he said, the strangest thing happened today. And then we all said, Dad, that's because Cary Grant's in Alaska. So after that, it was very well sealed that he was indeed Cary Grant's brother. And, uh, you know, we still carry that wonderful... And even whichever kid it was looked on the computer, looked at the internet search, and it officially says in there, Porter I. Leach slash Cary Grant. <laughs> Welcome. I'm Jackie, and um, I want to thank you. Special thanks to the Mill Valley seniors. You were dad's brothers and sisters here. I want to thank the church, the choir, Father Richard, because the church was what got dad up. He had such faith, and he loved coming to church on Sundays. And then I'd like to thank all of you some of you have come 40 years from when you first met him. When he was there when I was moving into the dorm at Santa Barbara. Some of you have traveled hundreds of miles. Some of you thousands of miles. You made a choice today, and the choice was to come, to show up. And I want to tell you two times that my father showed up. He was a quiet man. As you heard from Erica, mom and dad met and were married in their 20s. Well, in their 50s, my mother had a devastating stroke. She was in the hospital for almost a quarter of a year. 
And when she came out, she was so changed. She could not do anything. And if you saw her five, ten years ago, you would never have known that. But what happened was she had to relearn everything. And it was my sister Margie who deferred her education and my dad who lovingly taught my mother everything. Just a simple story. Mother would want a cup of coffee. She would take the coffee cup. She would put it on the stove and she'd turn up the gas. And so she had to be watched all the time. My father made a choice to, for the rest of his life and the rest of her life, to be by her side. And if he was not by her side, he knew exactly where she was. And she him. The second choice was when Margie's husband died in his 30s, leaving a four-year-old and an 18-month-old. My dad said, let's travel, let's move to Northern California. I think we can help Margie. Can you imagine giving up your life in Southern California to come and help? And because of that, we've got two wonderful men. So dad made quiet choices, and he was, he was there when people needed him. I do, I, I want to just thank you so much and just share with you just a little bit about his dying process. He made the choice to die at home, to die with hospice, and at one point, probably five days before he died, he, he and I were getting up, he was getting up and I was holding him because he was so weak. And he said, now what is this process? And I said, ah, Dad, this is the dying process. You are dying. And he said, I thought so. He said, you know, I get so confused. And I said, I know. You've never done it before. And it is confusing. So we're just there holding each other. And then we heard voices in the kitchen. We heard construction next door. Someone was ringing the doorbell, and then Dad said, Are we on reality TV? <laughs> and I said, It feels like it sometimes. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming, and thank you. A reading from the second letter of Paul to Timothy. <clears throat> In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. Be persistent, whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. 
As for you, always be sober. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and carry out your ministry fully. As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus said to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Gospel of the Lord. There are people, a few people, who show us how to live. Then there are even fewer people who show us how to die. And then, well, then there's Porter. He showed us how to do both, didn't he? In those last few visits with him, taking communion, it was always very clear to me, both by his visage and his words and his prayers and that firm grip that he never lost that God was in charge. And you only had to be around Porter for a little bit of time to realize that had been true for him for a very long time. And when you think of all the changes he saw in the world and in life, that was the thread that ran straight through it. God was in charge. Now, Porter's great ministry among us was to come early on Sunday mornings and sit right there. That seat was vacant for the few Sundays after he got ready to die and, and could no longer come. And he would come and sit there about 9.30 and listen to his choir of angels 
rehearse. And he was so faithful I could almost set my watch by his arrival. It was as though the whole of the community sort of came and gathered around him. That was Porter's ministry. And when we think of ministry, we think of great deeds and tasks, don't we? We think of people who go great lengths and distances. Porter did all that, of course, with his family and his friends. But in this place, his primary ministry, his reason for being, if you will, was to be present, to be here. And he loved the children who would come in, and he would always come out smiling at the end of the service, and he would take my hand in that firm grass and give me a smile that would just light up my day. That Cary Grant smile, all right. <laughs> who wouldn't be lit up by that, right? But what if we reflect on Porter's ministry as presence? Presence for his family, presence for his beloved wife. When I first knew Porter, he was coming to pick up Ellie after Wednesday Bible study. Ellie always kept me in line, by the way. I knew I was on the right track. And she would bang her hand on the table and say, Bingo! That's exactly where it was. I said, you just come back and help me write my sermon now. The porter was always there. That's the ministry of presence. And I can hear him almost saying, I'm here. With that slight Missouri drawl, you know, I'm here. I'm here, darling. I'm here. Porter and I never talked about the Gospel of John, but we didn't have to. Because Porter's life summed it up so beautifully. And we hear just a portion of it today, a very famous portion. It's one of Jesus' I am statements. I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we in the Christian community have pulled that out of context and tried to make it something it isn't. Porter understood it the right way. In context, Jesus is talking to his disciples who are very worried about his departure. And he is reassuring them. He's not saying, I'm the only path, so you've got to go out and convert everybody. He's not saying, you know, God loves you all, but I'm not sure about everybody else. He is reassuring them that he is there. He says this over and over again in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am resurrection. I am the path. His disciples are worried about whether or not they have enough to eat. He says, I'm here. I'm here. God is here. I'm here. I'm here with you. The disciples are worried about how they're going to get where they need to go. And are they on the right path? And Jesus says, I'm here. I'm here. The disciples are worried about whether more people are going to fall away or join them and the dangers of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I'm here. In 
Martha comes to Jesus outside of the tomb of her brother Lazarus and says, if you had been here, Lazarus would not be dead. Jesus says, I'm here. I'm here. That's who Porter was for all of us, living the Gospel of John. I'm here. And I don't know about you, but for me, even now, I can still hear him saying, I'm here. I'm here, darling. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.